I'd like to ask you to turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 19. We're continuing our study through just this section of 2 Kings, the section that deals with the reign of King Hezekiah of Judah. This morning we are looking at the prayer of Hezekiah as it's found in chapter 19, verses 14 through 19. Please give your attention to God's word. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste to the nations and to their, and their lands, and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed." So now, O Lord, our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. In the last chapter of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, Paul gives us a vivid picture of the spiritual armor that the Lord gives to his people to protect us from our spiritual enemies. The cosmic powers over this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, as he refers to them. And he gives it to us, this armor, to protect us and also to equip us to daily do spiritual battle in his name for his kingdom. Being armor, most of the things that are listed there in Ephesians 6 are defensive in nature. He talks about the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation. But one item in that list is both defensive and offensive. The sword of the spirit, he lists, which is the word of God. And we know that from experience, that the word of God as the sword of the spirit both protects us from error and the onslaught of the evil one, but also advances the cause. It's, a, it's a, a, a weapon that goes on the offensive against the enemy as well. But the last thing that's mentioned in the list isn't associated with either a weapon or an article of armor. The last thing that he lists there in Ephesians 6, as he puts it, praying at all times in the Spirit, making supplication for all the saints. And I've often wondered as I've read that list, as I've studied that list, why did Paul choose to not associate prayer with an article of armor or a weapon? Why didn't he? I mean, it would be easy for me to think of Paul talking about the crossbow of prayer or the spear of prayer. 
but he doesn't. And we don't know why. I don't know what Paul was thinking, but I would suspect it's because prayer, if you think of prayer as a weapon to accomplish the work of God in this world and to defeat the enemies of God in this world, prayer is kind of like a doomsday weapon. It's kind of like a button you push, and if you pray and God answers, you can annihilate all of God's enemies in a second. God has the power to do that. If God does what we ask him to do, there is no limitation to the power that would be displayed in that moment. As Jesus once said, with God, all things are possible. But prayer doesn't work that way because God doesn't work that way. Matter of fact, to us, we struggle with that, don't we? Because if you think of prayer as a weapon, then it's a weapon that, in our experience, seems to only work sporadically at best. So often we tried to wield the prayer as a weapon against those who are opposed to us and the spiritual forces of evil, and we end up feeling like it's left us down. And I think we struggle to pray because we have too small of a view of both the nature and the purpose of prayer. Prayer is not intended to accomplish our will, but prayer is intended to accomplish God's will. Because we try to use prayer to accomplish our will on our timeline and according to our agenda, we see it as something that is unreliable. And our lack of confidence in it leads us to only use it after we've tried everything else in our own power according to the flesh to try to accomplish our purposes on our own. We use it like a last resort. What I'd like to show you from this prayer of godly King Hezekiah this morning is that our prayers are only as good as our theology. Our prayers are only as good as our theology. The more we understand the one to whom we are speaking when we pray, the more effective our prayer will be in what God intends it for. And the more consistently we will be driven to prayer. The greater and more accurate your theology is, the more consistent and effective your prayer will be. We have here an example in King Hezekiah's prayer, a theologically sound prayer that reflects so many prayers that we find in Scripture. Just to quickly remind you, in case you haven't been with us these last few weeks, and for those that have, to remind you of the situation, it is a dire situation that Hezekiah and the people of Jerusalem are in. The king of Assyria is about to surround the city of Jerusalem with hundreds of thousands of enemy troops. And the Assyrian empire under King Sennacherib is an evil empire, and his intention is to wipe out Jerusalem and every trace of God's people. And we saw last week that Hezekiah went to the prophet Isaiah, to the temple, to seek the Lord's assistance. And the Lord answered him through the prophet Hezekiah to say, I am going to give you a temporary deliverance. And that's what he did. He raised up a future pharaoh of Egypt to come and to attack the Assyrian Empire on another front, which distracted Sennacherib, made him shift his forces in another direction temporarily, 
And so it was a temporary reprieve. But if you remember the last few verses we read in last week's passage, verses 10 through 13 of chapter 19, he writes a letter that basically reiterates not only all the threats against Hezekiah and Jerusalem, but also reiterates the mocking, not only of Hezekiah, but the mocking of God himself. Matter of fact, when I read that prayer in verses 10 through 13, I sometimes hear in my head the, the accent of Arnold Schwarzenegger because basically the bottom line of that letter is, I'll be back. You know, that's what he's saying. I am coming back. Do not grow self-assured. Do not trust in your God. I am coming back to destroy you. And that's where we left off. That was the cliffhanger that we left off at last week. What Hezekiah's prayer shows us in the light of this serious threat is that our prayers are directed by our view of our God. Who is this God to whom we pray? Notice the first thing that Hezekiah does. Before he talks to God, he does something, and it's a very important symbolic act. He goes to the temple and he spreads the letter before the Lord. Verse 14. He spreads the letter before the Lord in the temple. That was an important symbol of his trust in the Lord. We've seen that trust in the Lord was Hezekiah's defining characteristic. And so he lays the letter before the Lord and he's literally acting out what Psalm 55 tells us to do at all times. Psalm 55 verse 22 says, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous be moved. It reminds me when I was a brand new pastor, I was in my late 20s in my first little country church in western Pennsylvania. And I often would go to visit an elderly lady in the congregation. And she was such an inspiration to me because she suffered from severe arthritis, the kind of arthritis that just basically distorts and mangles the body. And she was stooped over and none of her limbs worked right. And, and especially her hands were all twisted up and, 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 and distorted. But yet, and, and she was usually a shut-in. I mean, I would go to visit her because she come, couldn't come to church. She wasn't able to come to church as often as she wanted to. And so I would go to visit her. And I would go and she would show me the clothing that she would knit and crochet for people all day long. That was her ministry at that very limited part of her life was to knit and crochet clothing to give to other people. Can you imagine how valuable that clothing was to know that it was created with such pain on the part of this godly woman? But she would, she would do this, make clothing and pray all day long. That was her ministry, very important ministry. And I asked her one day, and you know, I've learned a lot of great theology from a lot of great teachers that I've read and listened to over many years. But she taught me something very, very important that day that stuck with me ever since. I said to her, I said, how do you do it? How do you not only persevere through all the pain and the limitations? How do you not only persevere through it, but how do you do it with such joy in your heart and without complaining? She never complained. And her answer was, when I pray... I take my burdens to the foot of the throne of King Jesus and I lay them there and I refuse to take them back. It's that last phrase that's always stuck with me. Isn't that what we do so often? Yeah, we pray. We lay our burdens before the Lord, but then we take them back and try to deal with them in our own wisdom, in our own resources. 
This is what Hezekiah was attempting to do. He's laying the letter before the Lord and saying, I'm at the end. I, I have nothing to offer here. I need you, Lord. I lay this before you and I give it over to you, trusting in you. Hezekiah's prayer is very short. It takes less than 30 seconds to read it, if you were to read it. And it's probably, well, I don't know. It may only be a summary of what he said. Sometimes biblical prayers are summaries of what's said and doesn't include everything that was said. But honestly, this may be all that he said. And honestly, I say that because everything you need to say in a prayer like this is said here. He didn't need to say any more than what's here. That's why it's such a great example to us. Just like the Lord's Prayer that the Lord Jesus taught us. It isn't to be the only, that's not to be the only words we say, but what's there is what's needed to be said. And so it is with Hezekiah's prayer. This prayer is what we would call in biblical terms a lament. There are different kinds of prayers in scripture. This is a lament. And, you know, I think about the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms was given, us, given to teach us how to sing and praise God. It's also given to us to teach us how to pray. And when you think of the prayers that are in the book of Psalms, so many of them are laments. Matter of fact, if you were to add musical accompaniment to the Psalms, and you were to do it faithfully to the text that's there, most of the songs, I think, would probably be written in a minor key if you were going to artistically marry the music to the message of the psalm. And yet, I think about our hymnals, and there's so few minor key songs in our hymnals. And then if you go to contemporary worship music, there's far fewer songs written in a minor key. I love blues music. I still think a lot of worship music should be sung to the blues because that's the way that we're taught to worship God is to lay our burdens before the Lord. Instead, our worship music tends to be where we come to the church and put a smile on our face and, and act like we're happy and joyful when honestly we're carrying huge burdens that we don't take to the Lord. And so Hezekiah, just by that example, is showing us that this is an important way to interact with the God who made us and the God who redeemed us. But like all biblical laments, there's three basic parts to it. I'm going to skip the first part for a second. The second part is where he describes the crisis, the need. You know, he lays the, it's, it's the verbal equivalent of laying the letter before the Lord. He, he's telling the Lord, not that the Lord needs to know what the crisis is. He knows it far better than Hezekiah knows it. But that's part of giving the burden over to the Lord is to say, here's my crisis, Lord. This is what I'm giving to you. And he just describes it. And the last part is actually by far the shortest part of it. And that's the request. Basically where he says it in verse 19, save us, Lord. It's that simple. Save us. That's the request. By far the longest part of the prayer is the beginning part. And you notice what the nature of the beginning part of the prayer is? It's doxology. It's praise to God. You see, praise and lamentation aren't mutually exclusive. They're not contradictory. He begins his prayer of lamentation by praising God for his greatness. And that's what I want to look at, first of all, this morning. I want you to think about that. That when you pray, how often, when you pray to God, do you jump immediately to your requests you just start listing your needs immediately and a lot lord will hear that the lord will honor that at times but that's not the way that the scriptures teach us to pray the scriptures teach us to consider who we are talking to 
That's what the scripture wants us to do, to reflect upon the one whom we are addressing before we begin to talk about our needs. Isn't that what the Lord's Prayer that Jesus taught us does? Begins with praising the Lord and speaking of the Lord's purposes and then comes around to talk about requests. It's training. We are not by nature worshiping people. The Holy Spirit has to give us that ability. But we need to seek to develop that ability to begin our praise in a time of worship, of declaring to God his greatness. Again, not for his sake. He knows how great he is. But for our sake. And that will inherently transform your prayers. Prayerlessness is often a result of forgetting who God is. Prayerlessness is not only, as I said earlier, a reflection of pride and self-sufficiency, but often it's forgetting who God is. If you really began your time by thinking how great and awesome and merciful this God is, you would be driven to pray. So how does Hezekiah declare his praises to God to begin his lamentation? First of all, he declares God to be the God of the covenant. Why did Hezekiah have confidence? How did he know that not only God would hear his prayers, that's a profound theological statement in and of itself, but that God would care about what he had to say? Why would the God of the universe care about what Hezekiah had to say about his situation in a little corner of the Middle East in that early part of history? Why would he care? It's because God had bound himself to his people by covenant. The covenant of grace was initiated sovereignly by God with the people of Israel. And based on that covenant and his trust in the promises of that covenant, Hezekiah knew that when he approached God to pray to him, he would be heard and that God would be concerned about what he had to say. That's why Hezekiah addresses God in terms or in uses his personal name as I said a couple weeks ago that when you see the Lord in all capital letters in the English translation that means in the original Hebrew it's the Hebrew name Yahweh Yahweh is the covenant name of God the name that God gave to his people to address him according to the promises of the covenant of grace they were the people of Yahweh And they had the right, by God-given right, to address him by his covenant name. And they knew him by that name. He goes on to say that Yahweh is enthroned above the cherubim. Now, the cherubim, of course, were these strange angelic creatures that show up sometimes in the visions that the prophets of the Old Testament saw, also in some of the New Testament uh, writings. But I don't think that here, in this context... Hezekiah is thinking of the angels in heaven when he talks about God dwelling in the midst of between the cherubim. The language there reflects where he's at. Remember, he's in the temple. And in the center of the temple was the Holy of Holies, the place where God chose to meet with his people. The God who inhabits the universe would choose to meet his people in the Holy of Holies. And the Ark of the Covenant, with the mercy seat on the top, that represented the throne of God. And around the mercy seat, on both ends of the Ark of the Covenant, you had these cherubim with wings that stretched out over the mercy seat. 
And I think that that's the cherubim that Hezekiah is referring to here. And so he's thinking of the temple. He's thinking of the Holy of Holies. He's thinking of that mercy seat. The mercy seat is the place where one day a year on the Day of Atonement that the high priest representing the people of God would go into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat to show that atonement had been made, that the blood of a substitute had been shed so that God would have a relationship with his people, so that God would hear their prayers, so that God would answer his promises, fulfill his promises to his people because the blood had been shed and displayed upon the mercy seat. And so he approaches Yahweh who dwells between the cherubim. He's approaching God in terms of what we call the gospel. The Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat, the temple itself was a shadow that pointed forward to the cross of Jesus Christ where he died for our sins. The perfect Son of God bore the wrath of God that our sins deserved and died and completely paid that debt and then was raised from the dead on the third day, showing that God accepted his sacrifice on our behalf, conquering sin and death, and ascending to the right hand of God in heaven to reign over all. You see, the Ark of the Covenant, the temple, the blood sack, all of that pointed forward. It was a shadow of the cross of Christ and all that it means. And so that's where Hezekiah's hope was. That's how he knew that God would hear him. Secondly, Hezekiah declares God to be the God of heaven and earth. You notice that. You are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. That, again, is a radical statement of theology. That Yahweh, unlike the way that King Sennacherib saw him, Yahweh was not the God of Israel only. Yes, he had covenanted himself into a relationship with Israel, but he was not the God of Israel only. He was the God of the universe. He made all things. He rules over all things. He upholds all things. He sustains all things. He controls every square inch in the universe. This is the God whom Hezekiah addresses. Therefore, he is the God of the nations, all nations, not just Israel. He is the king of kings. And therefore, Hezekiah is making a radical statement about this powerful King Sennacherib of Assyria who is threatened to stomp on him like a bug. He is saying that Sennacherib, whether he acknowledges it or not, is accountable to Yahweh, the God of the universe. That he will be judged according to his obedience or lack thereof to the one lawgiver of the entire universe. Jesus said to Pilate, remember Pilate at that moment is representing the entire powerful Roman Empire in the first century. And Jesus said to Pilate, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Jesus knew the same God that Hezekiah knew. Paul later wrote, there is no authority except from God and those that exist, exist have been instituted by God. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of nations. We would do well to remember this. And as we think about how we can praise God to begin our prayers, think about the prayers that you've been offering, hopefully you've been offering, for our nation, for this presidential election that has everybody so up in arms 
How have you been praying? Well, if you begin your prayer by focusing on the God of Hezekiah, the God of Jesus, the God of Paul, who is not only the covenanted God of his people, but the God who reigns over the entire universe and especially the focus of the universe, which is earth, where all the kingdoms are. He is the Lord of all. That's got to affect the way you pray for your country. I've heard a lot of Christians talk about this upcoming election like it's doomsday if this candidate wins or if that candidate wins. As, if, as though the whole future of the church, the whole future of, of Western civilization rests on who gets elected to office in this election. That's not true. If you think for a moment about who the God is that we serve and the God that we appeal to, you understand that he is the one who raises up kings and casts them down according to his good purpose. Our trust is not in any candidate or any political party. Our trust is in the Lord. And if we vote to please the Lord and to please him alone, I'm not going to tell you what that bottom line answer is right now. You can ask me later. But if you vote to please the Lord and trust him to do his will, then he will bless your prayer. He will use your prayer to accomplish his will. Verses 17 and 18, notice how Hezekiah acknowledges that the Assyrian armies, he he basically is just reporting what the headlines of the day are reporting. These Assyrian armies have just swept through the Middle East. They have just wiped out nation after nation, city-state after city-state. Nobody can stand up to the Assyrian armies, certainly not tiny little puny Jerusalem and King Hezekiah. But, he says, the reason that the king of Assyria has gained this period of ultimate authority in the civilized world is because God has allowed it. He's allowed it, and the reason that these other pagan nations have not been able to stand up against them is because their gods are not gods at all. They're the figments of men's imaginations. But the God of Israel is the Lord of the universe. And King Sennacherib doesn't stand a chance no matter what the human odds may appear to be. It's the same issue that faced Moses when he stood before powerful Pharaoh in Egypt and demanded the will of God be done. It's the same issue that faced Elijah when he faced the the hundreds of prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. It's the same bottom line issue that Hezekiah is facing now before King Sennacherib of Assyria. Whose God is Lord? Whose God is the real God? That's how Hezekiah understands the situation. The third point of theology that we see in Hezekiah's prayer is that he declares Yahweh to be the God who sees and hears. Hezekiah's request assumes, notice, he assumes that God is omniscient, that he knows all things. He assumes that God is omnipresent, that he's fully present everywhere in this universe. And so he says, incline your ear, O Lord, and hear Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. We saw this last week. It's not that he's questioning God's ability to hear and see. God's omniscient. God's omnipresent. Of course he can hear and see. But what he's appealing to is God's special concern for his people. He's relying on God's promises to deliver the remnant that he had made. I'm always... I love Ephesians 1. It's one of my favorite passages in Scripture. And one of the reasons I love it so much is it's, it's, it's the big picture of world history. 
basically it takes world history back before the world was created, back into eternity past, and takes it all the way into the future, into eternity, eternity beyond the second coming of Christ. And, and it kind of gives us the big picture of what God's doing. Here's his big plan in broad terms. But I love how it ends. I don't know if you've ever noticed. There's a very important phrase, and it ends. You have to look carefully to catch it. In Ephesians 1, at the end, he says that at the end, he puts all things under Christ's feet and gives him his head over all things to the church. That this is Christ who has ascended to the right hand of Father, the Father in heaven. He is now the King of kings. He reigns over all things. He accomplishes his sovereign plan for all of world history to the church, for the church. Think about that. The church is at the very center of everything that the Lord intends to do in the world. All the world events seem so chaotic, out of control, but yet they are entirely under the control of the King of Kings. And he is working out every detail of world history, of present events, current events. He's working it all out around the context, all for the the supporting purpose of fulfilling his promises to the church. That's theology that will transform your prayers. If that's how you look at the God that you serve. And that's the God to whom Hezekiah says, Lord, listen. Open your eyes and see. Open your ears and listen. Hezekiah is crying out like a child for the ears of a father and the eyes of a father to focus upon his concern as his beloved children. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, your father knows what you need before you ask him. We're not asking the Lord to do things to change his perfect will. I shudder at the thought that my prayer could change the perfect will of God. He's working all this out for the glory of the church and every detail he's sovereign over and it's all perfect in his plan. I shudder at the thought that I could offer up a prayer that would cause him to divert from that plan even in the smallest way. I had a professor in seminary who said this. He said, God doesn't set about to do anything in the world without first moving the hearts of his people to pray for it. Now, there's a mystery there. Mystery of God's sovereignty and our responsibility that I can't fully comprehend. But that's very comforting to me. To know that God graciously chooses to use the prayers of his people to accomplish his perfect plan and purpose. He's sovereign over our prayers as well as the outcome of our prayers. John Piper said, God has decreed to make the prayers of his people the cause of his triumph in many battles. He didn't have to do that. God could push a button and annihilate all of his enemies if he wanted to. God could push a button and make all of his purposes come to pass in a moment if he wanted to, but he chooses to work through the prayers of his people. And if you understand that, that that, your prayers have that lofty purpose in the plan of God, why aren't you on your knees praying? Why are our lives so characterized by prayerlessness? We pray to the God of the covenant. We pray to the God of all nations. And we pray to the God who sees and hears. But finally, Hezekiah shows us why we pray. That's the theology. That's the person to whom we're speaking. But then at the end of the prayer, he reminds us why we're praying. And this is also very important. Verse 19, he finally gets to his request. He says, so now, O Lord, our God, save us, please, from his hand, from the hand of King Sennacherib. But for what purpose? 
What's the so that clause in that sentence? For what purpose does he want God to save his people? That all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. And we're back to doxology again. The whole purpose of asking God to deliver his people is so that the nations might know that Yahweh is the one true God. The purpose of his prayer is not to restore his own health and happiness and prosperity and comfort. Not even to restore the security and prosperity of Jerusalem or Judah or Israel. Isn't that really how we pray? I mean, if you were to be honest with yourself, when you ask yourself, why am I praying? What am, I'm making requests to God. What am, why am I praying? If we were really honest, wouldn't we answer and say, well, because I want to be happy and healthy and wealthy? Or maybe not for us. Maybe we're being unselfish and we're praying for somebody else. But are we really praying for the same reason Hezekiah is? Or are we praying that the people we love and care about would be happy and healthy and wealthy? Isn't that the purpose of our praying? Way too much of the time. But that wasn't Hezekiah's purpose. Hezekiah's desire should be our desire. That the world would see Yahweh as we see him. That's the purpose of biblical prayer. That's why Jesus taught us to begin our prayers by saying, Our Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. That wasn't to, to inform God about what, who he was and what his purpose was. It was to remind us of who he is and what his purpose is. And we pray confident that God has promised that this will come to pass. Yes, we don't know the details of how. We don't know how long it's going to take. We don't know the details at all about how his plan is going to be worked out in future year or years or decades or centuries. We don't know. But we do know the end because God's word tells us, Psalm 22, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations shall worship before you for kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over all the nations. I want to show you how this way of praying is so consistent from beginning to end in scripture. I want to take you over to the early church. After the death and resurrection and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ, the church was threatened by the authorities in Jerusalem. They had taken the apostles prisoner. Listen to how the church prayed for God to deliver. And just listen and hear the prayer of Hezekiah in the background of it. How similar they are. The church prays, this is Acts 4 beginning in verse 24. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the nations, the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. You hear the same themes in that prayer as in Hezekiah's prayer? God, you are sovereign. You're the Lord of the nations. Those rulers that set themselves against you were there by your whim, by your appointment. 
And yet you have gained the ultimate victory. And now your purpose is to spread the glorious name of Jesus to the ends of the earth. That's how they prayed. And God used that prayer. It says, and, the place where they, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Praying to glorify this great God to whom we're given the privilege of addressing day in and day out. Praying with the purpose of glorifying him and not with the purpose of being happy and healthy and wealthy enables us to accept different answers to our prayers than what we intend. Because I don't want to change his perfect plan. I want his plan to be carried out because his plan ends in our complete deliverance living with him eternally in a perfect kingdom in his very presence. And we understand that when we address this God with our prayers, that if glorifying God is the ultimate purpose and not our own personal earthly well-being, then that means that we are going to be asked to suffer for a while, much of the time. That we're going to experience temporary defeats on the road to eternal complete deliverance. Because we understand that in order for God to, uh, to accomplish his greater purposes in our lives, that often means, I mean, when you think about his purposes, one of his greatest purposes is to sanctify us, to make us like Jesus Christ. And we know from experience that often the best way to make us more like Christ is not by making us happy and healthy and wealthy, but by making us actually go through trials and tribulations and suffering. That's why we can praise him in the midst of those things, because it's accomplishing his higher purpose. We also know that the church, that the church advancing and taking the gospel to the ends of the earth until he comes again is the purpose of the church, and that's what he's promised will happen. And we know that the church most often doesn't succeed in those purposes and in reaching those goals through being happy and healthy and wealthy as a church in terms of this world's riches, but in terms of suffering. As has often been said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. God's promise, and he is faithful to that promise, we can trust him just like Hezekiah did, is that he will deliver us from suffering or through suffering into his eternal kingdom through death itself to a place where sin and death can never touch us. And it's all because of what Christ has done for us. Hezekiah knew that. That's why he was in the temple. That's why he was looking to the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. That's why he was in prayer to prepare to face his enemies. And that's where we need to be too. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for being lazy in our studies of scripture and theology. And forgive us for the outcome of that. That we have become way too prayerless. We have been become prideful and self-sufficient. Father, I pray that you would, first of all, fill your church with a renewed vision of your greatness and glory. Then in light of that glory, we might lay our laments before you, lay our burdens at the foot of the throne of Christ, and then truly trust in you to fulfill all of your promises, even when that means suffering for a short while. Thank you for the privilege of prayer. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.